0: All right, um, we're continuing in the book of Philippians tonight, Uh, and I'm going to read the passage first. We usually have like an intro, and then we read the passage, but I'm going to read it first, so if you don't like change, I apologize. This is Philippians 4, chapter, or sorry, verse 4 through 7, and you've seen this verse on a coffee mug or a t-shirt somewhere, at least one of these verses. Um, We're going to try and make it a little less cheesy, hopefully. Starting in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yeah, amen. Thank you. So we're going to be talking spending most of our time this evening on the subject of anxiety um, how to kind of how to think about how to deal with anxiety it's a pertinent pertinent topic I think, especially in our culture um, we're going to talk also about kind of how to get this peace of God that Paul talks about and no we're not we're not really talking about stress you know stress is a natural kind of reaction to difficult situations in life good and bad um, but when you're stressed, you kind of you get some some sort of hormonal thing goes on, and you get adrenaline, and you you know it helps you work harder and faster. We're not talking about that. We're talking about anxiety, which is sort of this you know kind of all-consuming worry that takes over and really hinders us from living as we ought to live. Um, and there's kind of we there's on the spectrum. There's kind of two ends of how we deal with anxiety, right? On the one side, there's the freak out, freak out people. I'm on this side. We do things like bite our nails and make lists and uh, just kind of pace around the living room and annoy our spouses, stuff like that. And on the other side of the spectrum, you've got just kind of the checkout people, just sort of the don't worry, don't worry, be happy type of folks. And uh, show of hands, who's who's with me on the flip out side? Yes. All right. Good. We all flip out. That's awesome. (laughs) I assume the rest of you check out. Or you don't know. That's okay. Uh, But no matter how you deal with anxiety, um, you don't really have to be a doctor or a counselor or a wizard to know that anxiety is a bad thing, right? Nobody wants more anxiety. Uh, And that's because we know it's it's a negative thing. It affects us in negative ways. It hinders us from living how we ought to live. I'll give you one personal example. Um, a couple of years, a couple of years ago, my, my wife and I went to a concert, uh, this jazz vocalist named Sophie Millman. She's a Russian-born Canadian jazz vocalist. I don't know. She's really good. So we got tickets. My dad actually bought us tickets to, to see her show. And with the tickets came this, uh, like, a reception hour. You know, you can go, like, meet... Sophie Millman and the band, right, so my plan was this: I was going to so impress Sophie with my charming demeanor and witty banter that Sophie would ask Lauren, my wife and I uh, out you know with the band after and we 'd have drinks and fun, and eventually we 'd be invited uh, to play in the band and we 'd make gold records and it was going to be a fun story to tell the grandchildren and so Uh, So I'm in this room, and I'm thinking the way that I'm going to open up the conversation is kind of uh, with an uh, amusing story, right? My dad, who also really likes this lady's music, was in San Diego that weekend, uh, and he was leaving Monday morning. Well, Sophie Millman was going to play a show in San Diego on Monday evening, so they were just going to miss each other. So that's how I was going to kick off the old story, you know, and, and start charming. Yeah, really cool, right? I'm awesome. I'm like the Fonz with my stories. And so I'm sitting in this room, and Sophie Millman, she's going to all the tables, meeting all the people, right? And she starts getting closer and closer, and like, at some point, I just kind of start freaking out in my mind, you know? I'm like, oh, what if I, you know, what if I say something that's offensive, or I've got, you know, what if I got something in my teeth, or I just act like an idiot, like, I don't know how, how I just start freaking out, and all of a sudden, she's standing in front of me. And so I reach my hand out, and, you know, we shake hands, and this is what comes out, seriously. My dad's in San Diego. That's all I said. My dad's in San Diego, and she just looks at me like, all right, and, for, you know, Laura and my wife sweeps in, and she's like, oh, I like your dress, and they, they start actually having a conversation. So, so the very best, I'll say, the very best anxiety causes you to act like a huge idiot, but... Um, we've got to admit that most of us, it's it's actually a much bigger deal. And some of us, you know, we we react kind of in the midst of either freaking out or checking out. We uh, we get really angry and destructive in our relationships, um, you know, to friends or family or coworkers. Some of us uh, we slide kind of back into past addictions or struggles. Some of us isolate. Um, some of us get physically sick. Just not good stuff. Um, Happening, and a lot of us justify these behaviors by saying, you know, well, I'm just—it's—it's it's that kind of season in life. You know, I'm really anxious right now, and so uh, these are my circumstances. I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. And I think Paul argues uh, in this passage; he gives us something kind of unique, uh, at least unique to how the culture deals with anxiety. And he says, I'm going to argue. I think that Paul makes the case that anxiety really isn't about our circumstances at all. Um, Anxiety really isn't so much about externals in our life as it is an internal thing. Uh, Because the truth of the matter is, we've all got stuff worth worrying about, right? The biblical worldview says that we live in a world still affected by sin, and so uh, difficult circumstances, none of that, you know, should really surprise us. The hope isn't found in alleviating all our worries, because that's never going to happen. So, Uh, but if that's the case, how is it possible to not be anxious and to have this peace of God. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father God, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word. We thank you that it is um, valid and good for us. I pray that you would uh, just be with us in this time uh, as we study what um, you've written to us and the truth that you have for us. Uh, I pray that you would protect my mouth from saying anything uh, detrimental to you and just be here, be with us in this time. We love you. Amen. All right, so if you're like me, you you, can, you like to look at the map, you know, before you set out on a trip. So here's kind of where we're going. I think Paul gives us three, uh, three things in this passage when we talk about dealing with anxiety. He gives us, one, a truth to understand. He gives us the second thing is a step to take. And then lastly, he gives us a promise to cling to. Okay, so a truth to understand, a step to take and a promise to cling to. The truth is going to help us to uh, see things correctly. The step is going to help us to respond correctly, and then the promise will provide kind of this continual reassurance. So that's where we're going. First things first, a truth to understand. Um, I'll just go ahead and and blow the surprise here. The truth is uh, that God is in control, and you are not. Um, what this means is you don't have total control over your life, whether you think you do or not. You don't have it. Uh, this is a theme, really, all throughout the Bible. Um, it's a theme. Uh, In this letter and I think in this passage, just before the passage that we're in, we're in Philippians 4. This is kind of Paul's final remarks to the Philippian church. And at the very end of chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Paul says this. He says that in the end, we await Christ Jesus who will glorify us by the same power that enables him to rule over all things. And then Paul uses this verse really to kind of set up the next 10, you know, Philippians 4, 1 through 10 or so. Uh, and he gives hints of it in our passage. He says he uses these phrases like in the Lord or in Christ Jesus. But I think he makes it especially clear in verse five where he says, the Lord is near or the Lord is at hand. If uh, you remember kind of from some of the, the previous weeks that Philippians were experiencing persecution uh, at this time, or at least the threat of persecution. And so Paul reminds them that the Lord is near, both um, kind of in this spatial sense, you know, in in the person of the Holy Spirit. And also in a temporal sense, that the Lord um, will one day, you know, return sometime soon and that he's going to set all things right. And this would have been a tremendous encouragement to the Philippian church, knowing that God is in control. And Paul is really starting from this place. And I think, you know, if you think about it, anxiety really is about control. Um, Anxiety strikes and really hits us the hardest when we feel like we're losing control over our lives. And we all have different ways that we tend to try and maintain control. Maybe it's money or health or through our relationships. Um, but I think Paul points to the fact that in reality, you know, no, that's not, that's not really true. You don't have control. And if you think about it, for any real length of time, you know, I mean, you, you can't even control the little stuff in life, right? You can't even keep your car running. I mean, if you're, you know, there's some of us that are that, like, we get the car washed all the time and, we, we take it in to get the oil changed every 1,500 miles, you know, just to be sure. And you take it in the mechanic, even when nothing's wrong, just to get it checked out. And the mechanic says, it's, it's fine. Give me $500. And then what happens? You're on your way to a job interview or something, and the car breaks down on the freeway. And you freak out. You know, why do you freak out? Because this illusion of your control over this kind of car situation just got shattered. And for the next week, you know, you get your car back from the mechanic, it's fixed, and the next week you drive around with this kind of anxious, you know, trembling. You're wondering, is my car going to break down again? It's going to break down again, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh. And you, you leave like an hour worth of margin everywhere you go. It's because you just were reminded, I, I really don't have total control over this situation. Now, I think Paul's starting here. In this passage, he's reminding us. Uh, Of this really powerful truth and he's first and foremost trying to lift up our thoughts And help us to see that God is ultimately in control And if we ever hope to deal with anxiety or be freed from it, I think we've really got to let this sink in I don't think any peace is going to come apart from this truth And for a lot of us you know, the biggest barrier to believing this or submitting to it is simply our own pride. It's This kind of uh, lie of self-sufficiency, right? You think if I can just if I can make enough money, then everything's going to be fine. I'll be able to, you know, kind of buy my own destiny. I'll get out of any situation, this trouble. If I if I can eat right and exercise enough and uh, stay healthy enough, I won't get sick. I won't get cancer. Nothing's going to go wrong. Everything will be fine. If I, you know, there's there's all these kind of ways that We think that we're self-sufficient, and all of them at the end are really us having these thoughts of, uh, you know, saying, I I don't need any outside help. I've got it under control. And I'll let you in on on a little secret. You're a lousy God. You're going to die. I mean, that's like strike number one on the I'm going to be godless. That's, That's not really. It does bode well for God if he dies. And, you know, really, you can't even keep your car running. So that's, that's kind of the only point I'll make. Um, even if you're in a really good place right now and you think everything's going fine in my life, you know, if you really get serious. In your most sober moments of the day, you know that none of us are more than one phone call away from life being completely turned upside down. Right? One, one phone call from the doctor's office, one knock on the door by a police officer, None of us are more than more than one phone call from getting life just totally destroyed life as we know it And I think admitting and submitting to this truth is critical for dealing with anxiety It's really to let go of this uh, This illusion of control Is to humble yourself and to say uh, Okay, God, I admit I'm not at the wheel. I surrender You are though you're in control and it really becomes liberating because it, it frees us from this burden that we can't carry and that we weren't meant to carry. Right? When you admit that you're not in control of the universe, you get uh, liberated and comforted, and not because you're left with chaos, but because you know that a good and wise and sovereign God is in control. And I think this this is also the key, if you look in verse 5, this is the key to Paul telling uh, the Philippian church here, let your gentleness be evident to all. This is one of those kind of rare situations in scripture where the, the Greek word here for gentleness is really difficult to translate. It doesn't happen that often, but we don't really have the English equivalent. Some of your translations probably say reasonableness. Um, the King James translation says moderation. And I think, you know, again, the, the Philippians were facing persecution, but... I think Paul uses it here to to get the idea across that, you know, hey, Philippian church, you can be gentle and reasonable and calm and content because, not because their circumstances warranted that kind of attitude, but because at the end of the day they knew that God was in control. The Lord is near. So one thing to know this, but how do we act on it? That's kind of a, a different situation. So number two, the step to take. I feel like a schmuck. I have a fan blowing on me. The rest of you don't. I'm sorry. Um, Okay, probably no surprise that the step to take, we're going to find that in verse 6. Now read it. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So Paul tells his readers that after establishing that God is in control, he says to, you know, do not be anxious, literally stop being anxious is what the Greek says. But he doesn't just leave it, leave it at that. Um, the reason that this verse kind of we think it's so cheesy is because, you know, you're going through a difficult time and somebody just comes up and it's like, don't worry. And then just sort of leave it there, you know, this kind of don't worry, be happy, this sort of checkout mentality. And between the freak out and the checkout ends, the checkout mode looks more Christian. But it's really not. Um, Paul doesn't call us to uh, carelessness or delusion. Um, he calls us to action. He says that in every situation or in all things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So what does he mean? What does this really mean? I think Paul's getting at something very specific here. There there are a lot of different kinds of prayers all all good stuff, but I think Paul's really narrowing in on what he's telling us to do. And there are kind of three things I want to take note of in verse 6. The first is, in every situation. Paul says, in every situation, pray about all things all the time, right? Pray about everything in life. In other words, don't don't just be somebody who prays you know, when the bottom falls out. Don't just be somebody who prays when um, everything's going fine in life. And so what does this do? What's you know, the, the more thoughtful of you are thinking, what, what's the point of letting my request be made known to God if God already knows everything? And I think the, the point is, in praying in every situation, through praying in every situation, we're really acknowledging our dependence on God. We're acknowledging that God is in control. It's kind of this humbling and surrendering of ourselves and saying that, I need your help. I think mean, that's what prayer is really at its core. It's this surrender. And this is how we're to live out the truth that God's in control. We're to come to him with everything in all situations. The second thing Paul says, pray with thanksgiving. There's kind of two points here. Um, the with thanksgiving, I think on a very plain level, you know, Paul's telling us to count our blessings. Right? Uh, pray grateful and thankful for what you have. Um, you know, that's salvation, life, opportunity. I mean, it, even as, as bad as anything gets, right, if, if we recognize who God is and who we are, I think we can come to him and, and be thankful, generally. I mean, gratitude should really be kind of this keystone of Christian living. I think thankfulness is synonymous with, with being a Christian and realizing who you are and who God is. So Paul says, pray with thanksgiving. But there's a third thing, and I I heard a minister talk about this once, and um, he explained it in a way that was really helpful for me. And we're going to kind of go a level deeper now. Um, He says, by praying in all things with thanksgiving, we're thanking God for whatever outcome happens. So Paul is talking here about this type of prayer that calls us to surrender ahead of time to God's will and to God's control. It's us saying, you know, God, no matter what happens in the situation, I'm thankful that you're in control. But I'm going to surrender to that. And for some of us, I know this this seems like a really, really difficult thing to do because some of us are in really difficult places in life right now. Um, Some of us, we've prayed before and things only seem to get worse. So, What do you do with that? How can Paul say this? Pray ahead of time, thanking God for whatever outcome. Well, in, in Romans eight twenty eight, this is another coffee mug verse, but please don't discard it. Um, we're told that in all things, in all situations, both in good and bad, God works together for good, for the good of those who love him. Now, God doesn't cause the bad, um, the problems in the world. That's a result of sin. Um, scripture is crystal clear about that. But we're told that despite that, God, he doesn't withdraw, he doesn't turn his back. But that instead, he's going to use everything, ultimately, in the end, for our good. And it's because of this that I think we can pray with thanksgiving. Because we know that God will do what's absolutely best. So, please stay with me here. Um, this, This isn't blind or stupid or ignorant trust. I think it could sound like that if you're on the outside of this thing, but it's, it's not. You've got to look at it this way. If, if God was really the creator, if there was really a creator God who made all things, and we're finite human beings, wouldn't it make sense that we just really wouldn't have the whole big picture of our life? Right? Any more than a toddler is going to know the whole big picture of their own life? How, it really couldn't be any other way, Right? I mean, a, a toddler doesn't understand why they can't eat a handful of sand, right? But mom and dad knows that's going to jack your tummy up, so I'm not going to let you eat that handful of sand. And no matter how you know hard the kid kicks and screams, I, I really don't think there's a parent that's going to feed their child a handful of sand. I don't know. Maybe sand has some good properties or something. I'm not sure, but it's probably bad. Um, there's, you know, a four-year-old isn't going to understand why mom or dad holds them down in a chair and lets this doctor literally stab them with a needle, right? Child's not going to get that. I've heard that's one of the worst things about being a parent with young kids. You've got to hold your kid down, and they're just looking at you like, what are you doing to me? Toddler's not going to understand that, right? But mom or dad knows you need the shot to get better, to get healthy. So they're going to they're gonna hold their kid down. I think many situations are similar for us. We don't, we don't see uh, the big picture. We don't know everything. And sometimes there's going to be stuff that just doesn't make sense to us. And if there's really an all-knowing creator God, I don't see how it could be any different. Paul says pray in all things and be thankful to God, knowing that he's in control and that he's going to ultimately work everything together for good. This is this is a hard pill to swallow, I know. Bless you. But please don't think I'm just saying this from a theoretical or a philosophical standpoint. Um, I know this is tough. A lot of you know this story because I've shared it here before. But uh, when I was in high school, uh, my best friend was this girl uh, who led me to Christ. Um, Really, her and her family just were really, really instrumental in my coming to the Lord, and uh, we were best friends. She was discipling me, and um, on a Wednesday morning, she got into a car accident on the way to school, and she was taken to the hospital. And I drove there. I went to the hospital. I was with uh, my family. Was with me. Her family was there, and at some point, the doctor comes out and says, "She, she's in surgery right now." And I was a Christian only for about 8 8 months, maybe a year at the time. And I sat outside that room and I prayed, God, please don't let her die. And she did. And all I had in that moment and all I have now really is this truth that God is in control that he knows all things. He knows the whole story. And I only have a small piece of it. And that ultimately he's going to work to bring good out of every situation. Some of you are in some really hard places. Um, maybe you're really lonely. You've been praying for you know, a long time for community or, or for a spouse, desire to get married and Nothing's come up. Maybe you're on the brink of a kind of financial disaster, and you've prayed about that, and it doesn't seem to be letting up. Doesn't, no, you know, no money's coming in. Um, some of you are sick. You have friends that are sick. Some of you can't get pregnant. But please don't turn away from God. Don't turn away from God just because you can't explain your situation. Don't think he doesn't care. I don't know why those things are happening in your life, and there's a good chance you're never going to know this side of heaven why things are playing out a particular way. But we don't have the full story. We can't see the big purpose. It just makes sense that we wouldn't be able to. Paul tells us that God is in control, and by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to him. And in, in so doing, you're, you're acknowledging your need for him and your trust in his goodness and his power to work all things together for good. I think this is how Paul is telling us to pray here. And when we do, we're given a promise. This is verse 7. It says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is the promise we've been given that the peace of God which transcends which surpasses all understanding a peace that we can't explain is going to come over us. And the reason we won't, you know, likely be able to explain it is because it's it's not going to make sense to the world, right? It's not going to maybe make sense to human reason because this peace is going to happen regardless of your circumstances. You've got to notice, Paul doesn't link the peace of God with you getting all your prayers answered immediately, right? He doesn't link the peace of God with all of your circumstances being alleviated, you know, all the bad things going away. Instead, he says that the peace of God will overwhelm your circumstances, And this promise is ours, whether our prayers are answered immediately or not. And I I would have probably been pretty uncomfortable saying this even just a couple years ago, but sometimes this peace of God, you're going to feel it so strongly. It's just going to wash over you. And you're going to feel it. And thank God for those times. Those are good times. But sometimes it's not going to happen that way. But just because you don't get a warm and cozy feeling doesn't mean that the peace of God is not a reality and not something that you'll be have. Paul assures us the promise of the peace of God exists despite our circumstances and despite our feelings. And thank God for that. You know, this Christianity is not just this emotionalism or this sentimentality, right? In the midst of our circumstances and despite our feelings, this is our promise. That the peace of God will be ours, given to us by the God of peace. This is how we're set free from anxiety. Right? This is how we're able to rejoice, as Paul tells us to do twice in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. We say God is in control and I'll go to him with all my life and surrender to his wise counsel and by prayer with thanksgiving in all things and I know that he's promised me the peace, this peace which surpasses all understanding. Uh, I'm going to wrap up Pretty soon, but we've got to look uh, real quick at the way Paul tells us that this is all made possible And then to the end of verse 7 he says in Christ Jesus Right, this isn't just tacked on the end here Paul's really got a point um, He says that the peace of God is going to guard our whole beings Right, our mind and our hearts will be ours as we live in relationship with Christ Jesus I think some of us, we, we don't go to God because we don't believe he controls the world. We, we maybe are too prideful or we have this kind of lie of self-sufficiency, and that's why we don't go to God. And if that's the case, you know, you've got to work that out. Um, you, you need to address that. That's got to be looked at. But there's another reason that I think is actually more common, at least in this place it's that you don't go to God because you don't believe that he loves you enough. At the end of the day, you really don't believe that he cares. Or maybe you think, I'd, I'd love to go to God, but I can't, after not after what I did last night. Not after this past week that I had, I did it again. Uh-uh, can't go to God. You don't go to God because you don't think you're good enough. Listen to me. You are not good enough. You never were and you never will be. You're not good enough. That's why Paul says, in Christ Jesus. And freedom from anxiety starts Here with this knowledge that we're loved by God in Christ And if you don't believe this uh, we're we're given a really helpful metaphor It's one that's really helped me Um, all throughout scripture. We're called the bride of Christ This uh, in Ephesians 5. It's kind of one of the more common Places and Tim Keller. He's a, a pastor in Manhattan. He explained it in a way that just really made sense to me And he says that as a minister, you know, I stand, I do a lot of weddings, and I stand in a very unique place, right? I'm at the altar, uh, looking down the aisle, looking at the bride who's coming in, and really just the minister and the groom kind of share that point of view, right? So it's kind of a unique place. And every culture has, uh, you know, their version of the wedding gown. Um, You know, in our culture, it's... uh, a big white dress, and if I was more cultured, I'd have other examples. I don't. Um, but he makes a really interesting point. He says, you know, and people laugh at this. It's not meant to be funny, but he says, in, it, it doesn't matter what that girl looks like in reality. But on that day, she is beautiful. Because she's, you know, wearing this gown, this wedding garment. And the groom stands up there, and he, just can't, he can't wait for his bride to, to get down there, right? To get up to the altar. And when Scripture says that we're the bride of Christ, it's telling us that we're clothed in this wedding gown of righteousness. If you're a Christian, Christ went to the cross not only just to take your sin, would have just made you morally neutral, But he he went to the cross and there's this great exchange of your sin for his righteousness. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failures. He doesn't see your disbelief. He sees perfect, spotless righteousness. So we're called the bride of Christ. Christ stands at the altar and he says, come to me. Come to me, my beloved. I want you don't stand back there walk to me I love you I can't wait to be with you you're good enough because I made you good enough that's what it is to be the bride of Christ You're, you're never going to be free from anxiety if you think you have to earn God's affection. Freedom starts, really, truly starts when you realize that once you've placed your faith in Christ, you've been forgiven of your sins and you're counted as righteous before God. There's no more guilt, no more shame, no more working for God's love. In this passage, God tells us that he's in control And that we're to come to him with prayer, in prayer, with thanksgiving, for no other reason than he loves us. And he wants to experience, he wants us to experience freedom from anxiety and freedom into joy and rejoicing and life to the full. Life as a joyful people. If you're struggling uh, with anxiety somewhere in your life right now, if you, if you have trouble with the idea that, that God is in control or you're just not convinced that God loves you in this last worship set, I want you just to offer that up to the Lord. And if you want prayer, we're going to have prayer in this back room. Um, you can go pray with somebody. You can just have somebody pray for you. But go, go back and get prayer. And it's kind of a closing prayer. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 131 over us. And Psalm 131 was written like 3,000 years ago by King David. Um, And King David was this great, you know, man of God, but he also had a really tumultuous life. Um, Kind of at his low point, you know, he committed adultery with somebody and then had her husband murdered. Um, He wasn't this perfect moral example for us to follow. But despite his, you know, all this kind of crazy life stuff going on, David knew the peace of God. And he wrote about it in this psalm. And it's it's my hope, really, that this would be our prayer. Um, so I'm going to read that uh, as, as a closing. This is from the New Living Translation. I've added some comments from our Philippians 4 verse. They're in parentheses. So you're welcome to close your eyes if you want. Uh, You can read along on the screen to yourself. David writes this. He says, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, because I know that you are in control, I have calmed and quieted myself. I can be gentle like a weaned child who no longer cries for his mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me, not hungry, but peaceful. O people of God, put your hope in the Lord now and always. Amen.